It's August 9th, 2015. I'm Arthur Falls, and you're listening to episode 3 of The New Renaissance, a show exploring the intersection of disruptive innovation, open source, and the individual. I got in touch with Sarah Perry, guest editor at ribbonfarm.com, to talk about how online communities differ from traditional ones and how those differences might translate into the technology developed by these groups. Our discussion revolved around ideas presented in a blog post of Sarah's entitled Weaponized Sacredness, which, among other things, explores the behavior of groups as entities independent of the individual people that make them up. I hope you guys enjoy listening. Well, my name is Sarah Perry. Uh, I am a housewife and... I'm the uh, contributing editor of ribbonfarm.com, and that's my that's my main home on the internet. That's a that's a site that uh, I uh, edit for and contribute to in uh, collaboration with Venkatesh Rao. I have been kind of internet friends with Venkat for many years, and I invented the term insight porn, which is a which is a term for uh, articles or or text or ideas that. Uh, create the, the sensation of insight and that people uh, people with minds like ours tend to crave insight almost like people crave sexual stimulation so the idea of insight porn is something that provides that and maybe it's a it's a um, deprecatory term for that but uh, yeah he offered me the the chance to kind of be a, a regular contributing partner of, of that my goal really is to Look at how internet communities differ from meat space communities and then how that influences uh, essentially the technology they develop or the technology that they inspire. You know, because you know, there is this, uh, this ferment of innovation that takes place on the internet, especially right now, and it's not professional, it's just amateur innovators. And that's really what I, I want to understand the culture that, um, that drives them and how they express that culture in technology. So in the past, communities of all kinds were usually limited by their geographical proximity of the individuals in the community. But on the internet, we don't have that restriction. How might this affect the nature of communities that develop online? Well, communities that are restricted according to geographical location tend to rely on like meat space ritual. Uh, you might build a cathedral. Uh, you pray five times a day in front of people or once a week or whatever. Uh, you do rituals with people, hang out with them at the pub. Uh, so those tend to be the the factors that underlie meat space community, geographically co-located community. Uh, internet communities tend to be more made of pure information. So text and communication and rituals that aren't so much performed physically and, and together. So in a sense that makes that's that's really losing a tool. I think doing synchronized activity like dancing or praying together can be really strengthening for a community, but it also means they can be weirder and more different than any any geographic community can be. They can also draw together. So people who are together geographically might be really different and they they're not they're not located together in the same place so much because their personalities are the same. Internet communities are, I think, can be much more segregated based on personality. So instead of just whoever happens to live near you, you're going to form communities with people who are 
who have the same interests and think the same way you do. Um, so they're going to they're gonna be somewhat different that way. And that's another thing that just hasn't existed so much before in the world. It sounds like that might limit the, uh, might limit the pool of ideas that a community on the internet has access to, is, you know, and which sounds ironic. Do, do you think that's a contributing factor to the um, almost evangelistic? I think there's two directions. One that you point out that it can become a bubble. And that it's it's not you're not hearing from your neighbors who might be who who historically might have had really different views. Uh, you're just hearing from really like-minded people. But I think also it allows ideas to develop that that wouldn't be able to develop in localized communities. So so pulling in two different directions. And um, and so I mean to introduce the idea that really kind of uh, inspired me to actually get in touch with you. <laughs> this idea of the egregore. Yeah. And could could yeah could you ex, could you explain the idea of an egregore, kind of what it does and how it relates to these online communities? Yeah, an egregore is is kind of like a god that's made of information. Uh, it's a sometimes called an autonomous psychic entity that's made up of people's thoughts and also influences people's thoughts. And I think we we need the the concept of of signaling from economics to understand what they are. Um, signaling or costly signaling is something that's that's exists throughout nature and, and you know down down to the level of birds and frogs and insects and plants um if you if you're a peacock you can signal that you're a really good peacock if you have a big beautiful tail uh it's really costly to have a big tail uh but that that shows the lady peacocks that you're a great cooperation partner for mating um that's kind of one-to-one -one signaling uh people have developed this this other kind of signaling where you can signal not just to each other you can signal toward this this god entity so you can as I, as I said pray once a week or five times a day you can build cathedrals you can dress in a particular way um you can do particular rituals say things not say not say certain things respect taboos uh all of those are directed toward the sort of mysterious entity that i called egregore uh and it's a it's kind of an efficient way of signaling to a lot of people at once that you're you're a good person, you're cooperative, you are committed to the group, whatever your group is. Um, so it's a, an egregore is a useful thing, but it can also potentially kind of metastasize and become a very, a very harmful thing. So um, egregores are kind of parasitic entities, but a parasite's not necessarily bad for us. Like our, our gut bacteria kind of are parasites, but they really help us. We couldn't live without them. Uh, it's the same with our culture. These things, we need them, we rely on them, they rely on us, uh, but they can either be really friendly toward us, like our gut bacteria, or they can be unfriendly, like smallpox. Could you offer some examples of uh, of egregores and maybe some that are some that are like the smallpox and some that are like <laughs> that are like our friendly gut bacteria? Yeah, I think religion. It's usually religion that's transmitted from parent to child. It's in in biological terms, that's vertical transmission. They really, so, so an egregore can have, can survive in two ways that rely on us. They can either be passed from parent to child and then their only hope of growing is if the population grows. Um, those tend to be pretty friendly, like our gut bacteria, um, older religions, um, things like, like politeness norms, cooperating with your neighbor, uh, stuff like that. There's the other way that, that these, these beings, these egregores can, can breed and survive is what's in biological terms, horizontal transmission. They can 
spread across the countryside between unrelated people and all around the world, those like kind of like smallpox tend to be able to take more out of us. So uh, I think I think communism in the in the 20th century and, and partly in the 19th century is an example of this uh, really destructive, killing tens of billions of people, kind of spreading across the land very quickly. Uh, the French Revolution is another example that I that I think is a, is a, a sort of destructive egregore that, that appears out of nowhere and spreads across the countryside. They don't sit around and wear t-shirts that say, I'm an egregore. So you have to, you have to look at them, look at human behavior to, in order to see them. If there are particular rituals going on, you can often suspect that there's an egregore. One, one recent event I've been thinking about is the uh, kind of vilification of Sir Tim Hunt, the uh, Nobel Prize winning biochemist who kind of said the wrong thing, sort of a sacredness violation about women in science and lost his job, was kind of vilified in the press, drummed out of of uh, polite circles. And uh, and that's that's kind of a hint that there's an egregore behind there, the sort of uh, feminist egregore, the idea that, that that's sort of a sacred thing you're not even allowed to joke about. Because that's a disproportionate response, isn't it, to a... Um to a view that he may have held in private, but um, but let it leak out. Yeah, even that he appears to have been joking about in, in, in a self-deprecating manner. So it's a, a super disproportionate response uh, that the, apparently the substance of his talk was praising women scientists and kind of making fun of himself for being a bit of a dinosaur. And that was kind of held against him and taken out of context. But that the what you said, the disproportionate response is exactly what we'd expect if there's a, a sort of sacredness and an egregoric entity involved that it required want a disproportionate response. So how does a uh, how do, how would you relate the the word meme, which we're all familiar with? How would you relate the word meme to the term egregore? I think an egregore is made of memes. That uh, I, I like to use the term uh, memeplex, kind of a complex of memes that uh, that's transmitted within a society that includes all the different ideas and culture, food processing methods and diets and rituals and dances and stories that, that makes up a culture. Um, those are also what egregores are composed of. So that's, the, that's sort of the genes or the stuff by which egregores live. I've always thought of a meme as kind of only existing in transmission. Mm -hmm. And the, the classic example is um, cat photos. <laughs> yes. Is the meme the cultural content of that or is it the the uh, the cat photo itself? I mean, with the yeah. with caption and everything. I mean, is that the meme, or is the meme the actual cultural content of the cat photo and caption? That's a good question. I think uh, the fact that it's funny to uh, to see a mind in a cat, I think, is culturally specific. Um, instead of killing and torturing cats, which is another, <laughs> which is a, a past thing. Um, a, an 18th century example would be uh, very popular dioramas of stuffed animals, uh, uh, taxidermy stuffed animals set, are set up to look like they're having tea or doing human things. So it's something that I think has some amount of universality, but it's, it's probably culturally specific. The poker playing dogs, right? Yes, absolutely. That's weird. I've never actually thought about it like that. Mm -hmm. But I suppose that is a cat photo. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and e Egyptian hieroglyphs. Absolutely. <laughs> right. I'm still still trying to find a resolution to the uh, the to you know the meme as mm -hmm. existing in transmission or mm -hmm. existing um, independent of transmission. I think that it 
it has to exist somewhat independent of transmission because it still affects people's minds. So I, I think I take dietary norms maybe as a, as a more general example of a meme, uh, how to eat food, how to process food, what foods to eat, what not to eat. They exist in transmission, but then they continue to affect us after when, even when we're alone. So um, if we have an idea that a food is unhealthy or dirty, we're not going to eat it even if we're not in front of other people. So I think they, they are transmitted, but they, they continue to affect us even beyond transmission. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how that applies to the cat photos, though. <laughs> it's something that people really have in common that we can, you can show that you're kind of a, uh, a compassionate and you, know, you have a sense of humor if you can perceive that, you know, that it's funny. I wonder if that's a kind of Turing test. Yes. No, I definitely think, what's his name? Um, Daniel Dennett has argued that humor is an AI hard problem, um, that detecting detecting humor is on par with any of the, the hardest AI problems. Uh, and that it's, yeah, it's a very, very interesting problem. The book I'm thinking of is called Inside Jokes, uh, Using Humor to Reverse Engineer the Mind by Hurley, Dennett, and Adams. I think it's 2012. So basically you are, so to, to bring this back to the, to the word egregore, a meme is an egregore is made up of memes, or an egregore is say is synonymous with um, the word memeplex, or maybe uh, um, or maybe a hive mind, or, or absolutely something like that. hive mind is a is a perfect synonym, or group mind, yeah. Except that in in describing it as an egregore, you're separating it as yes. from the group and making it an independent entity. Yes, because it's it's not simply synonymous with the group; it's it's autonomous. It takes on its own life, uh, so it's. We don't want to, I, I don't want to get mystical in this sense. I don't think there's like a separate kind of energy or mystical brainwaves that, that these egregores are made of. They're just made of people and thoughts. But this entity does become kind of separate. It takes on its own life. Uh, it does things that the group wouldn't want it to do, that no individual in the group would want it to do. So it's, it's uncontrollable. And I think that's, that's one of the ways that, that it's, it's separate from the group. Um, it's in order to be an efficient locus of signaling, it has to be somewhat separate from the group. Um, but then it can, because of that separateness, it can take on a life of its own and do things that the group is, is not happy with. Okay. And so, because it's more, it's a kind of, it's a complex system in and of itself, isn't it? Absolutely. I guess as, as the locus of all of the, of all of the signaling, there's <laughs> a, uh, there's a complex interaction there that can produce unpredictable results, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the kind of the, the core of what it means to be a complex system. There are emergent phenomena that we can't predict just from a definition of the of the system, like uh, uh, is it Conway's game of life that you wouldn't necessarily, just looking at the rules of the game of life, you wouldn't know that these weird little spinners and guns and creatures would, would come out of it. So same thing. So how does information technology affect egregoric entities? Um, you know, how does it, because um, we've, we've talked about how they, um, they can be transmitted vertically from, from parent to offspring and how, uh, how they can be transmitted horizontally in the, in the form of, say, communism last century. It seems that um, information technology provides a, it provides a medium through which uh, these entities could transmit their influence really rapidly exactly. and um starting with ra radio well print 500 years ago and then radio and television and internet it makes makes it faster and faster a uh, horizontal transmission so definitely something to be aware of and watch out for um new entities that that couldn't have existed before 
have been allowed to exist by these communication technologies and they can do things that, that were never possible before. And humans, we're kind of still running the same software on our brains, but we're, we're connected together with, with different software and hardware than ever existed. So yeah, new things are possible, new good things and new scary things are both possible. I'm actually reminded, and this is a little bit tangential, but I'm reminded of, um, of World War I when, uh, when there were these stirrings of revolution in Russia. Mm -hmm. And in order to, um, to defuse the, uh, the Russian threat, the Germans supported Lenin and, um, and the communists over there in order to, um, to depose the Tsar mm -hmm. and, um, and diminish, his, uh, diminish the, the fighting potential over there. But ultimately, that wound up that egregore that uh, of revolution wound up bleeding into the wound up transmitting into the the German military and causing them increased problems on that front. Very ironic. <laughs> uh, Dan Carlin, you, you know, he does hardcore history. I'm not sure if you've. Um, oh yeah, he's great. He likened it to a uh, like biological warfare, but with an idea, which is you know, exactly what we're talking about here. I think that's a brilliant summation. Yeah that it's, it's a, a weapon that you really can't control, just like biological weapons. It's, a, it's something that's very powerful. Of course, you want to get involved in it, but it often tends to backfire. How does, um, so to go back to this, uh, this idea of viral spread mm -hmm. and, uh, and information technology, how does the medium or existing in the medium of the internet, how does that affect the way um, egregores develop and how does that affect the signaling that people, um, people use? Well, information technology offers many faces for signaling to occur on many uh, uh, things like the messages that you send, the avatar that you choose, um, the both content and the style. Um, also, what you, uh, the people that you talk to, the ideas that are that are on the table that are okay to consider, the ones that you actively don't consider. So taboos are are a way of doing that. Um, uh, I think I think it was interesting. We recently saw the Supreme Court same-sex marriage decision came down. All of a sudden, all of the big corporate brands had rainbow flags on their on their logos. So that was a that was an example of an egregore kind of coming to fruition in this sort of sad corporate channel. <laughs> um, like, oh, we're we're supporting gay marriage even more than you. <laughs> um, but that's no matter what the the internet community is um what uh even sending cute animal pictures can be can, is one of the rituals that that can uh that that makes possible but other rituals things like like the scapegoating of tim hunt i think that's made much more easy by uh internet connectivity internet communities better things i think you know to be to be positive i think things like bitcoin are made possible by internet community that that would have been really difficult uh to to get started and transmit before that was a possibility not just the computing power but also the the information uh power the uh person-to-person -person, uh media power i was talking to someone and they described uh bitcoin as the mother of all memes yes yes it's my my husband has jokingly described it as a super normal stimulus for money that it's it's money that's more perfect than any money that humans have ever encountered. Um, this is actually, Bitcoin's actually something that's going to be great to come back to. Oh, sure. Yeah, sorry, Bitcoin. <laughs> no, not at okay. all, because, you know, I, I talk about Bitcoin forever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so sacredness in hacker culture. 
Yeah, I think so. One thing about sacredness is that some people are more susceptible to it than others. Um, some people are naturally sort of like church ladies who will, uh, who are very pious and uh, want to, you know, respect taboos. And that that doesn't just mean actual church ladies. That can mean, you know, feminists and and uh, uh, people who are kind of ra- portray themselves as radicals, but maybe actually are really into just signaling the particular sacredness and respecting sacredness. Uh, I think hackers tend to be almost sacredness blind often. Hackers are often taken from people with very high IQs, maybe not neurotypical. Um, both both uh, computer science and mathematics kind of have this selection effect. And there are people who it's, it's almost like it's just impossible to see why these people are wearing these flags and doing these rituals. Just what are, what are you doing? Like, so I think hackers are kind of naturally sacredness blind. They, they tend to be, but they also tend to be the people who care most about free speech. I think almost the, the only group that really cares about free speech or treats that as sacred. Um, back in the 90s, I remember when, when strong cryptography was, was an illegal munition, uh, people would make t-shirts that had uh, cryptographic code on them kind of to say, well, are you, are you so against free speech that you would, you would prohibit a t-shirt? You know, this, this t-shirt is an illegal munition. So I, I see that as kind of a ritual promoting freedom of speech and freedom of information. Uh, I don't see a lot of other communities doing that. And I think that that has something to do with the, the kind of people who select into hacker culture, that they're not into the normal sacrednesses of respecting all the taboos. They're more into actual freedom of information. So sacredness blind. Um, how... But there is, but in the, even in being sacredness blind, there has to be some sacredness in there, absolutely, though, right? Absolutely, it's, it, there's there's not zero. So there's still people who are somewhat somewhat sacred. I think Linus Torvalds and uh, ESR Eric Raymond, and maybe even on the opposite spectrum, uh, Richard Stallman, although he's somewhat of a controversial figure. Uh, people who are somewhat sacred figures in math, maybe Paul Erdős, um, von Neumann, and Feynman. Uh, who are kind of uh, people who can uh, not 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 people who can do no wrong, but whose whose mythos is is respected. And there there are concepts that are kind of sacred. These are often complicated and have to do with code. But <laughs> and the the battlegrounds tend to form around really uh, practical physical things like cryptography and uh, net neutrality and you know, what, what bits can go down, what, uh, what, uh, wire, um, things like, like what's going on in Reddit now, what, uh, what kind of censorship is taking place. That tends to be the, the battleground that, that people, uh, that people line up against. And, and yeah, that may be because it's, it is more pure that way. It's more made of, made of bits rather than made of emotions and also yeah the, the sort of self-selection of personality types into that domain there's a phrase that came up before you said um you said use the word what was it insight porn oh yeah <laughs> and the other the counter to that was um outrage porn indeed outrage porn is another i like to call things porn um the <laughs> outrage porn is uh basically articles or happenings in the in the news that allow us to feel outrage against the outgroup, that we define some outgroup, whether it's uh, police or neo-Nazis or uh, sexists or whoever, um, these, these bad, terrible people. Um, and outrage porn is something that just allows us to stoke those emotions. So clearly those are emotions that people like to feel. 
Uh, I don't know how good for us those are. It's probably good for us sometimes. I mentioned my my little internet community has a has a holiday on Sundays. We call it Serene Social Sloth Sunday, and uh, the rule is no outrage porn on Sunday. So you can talk about anything you want, but no no outrage against the outgroup, however we define them. So whoever we might be making fun of on on Saturday and Monday, we we leave them alone on Sunday. <laughs> Back when 4chan, which was known as a you know yeah. just kind of the most obscene uh, obscene of these groups online, mm-hmm. was um, when Anonymous kind of split off from that. Yeah, it seemed like Anonymous went off on this tangent of outrage porn. Mm-hmm. They uh, they were high, these highly outraged outraged people, and it, and there was this real disillusionment among other members of, of you know of 4chan kind of the spirit of it was of the community was being adulterated Uh and ultimately that that you know there was a there was a schism there i guess absolutely it seems like anonymous itself is an is this weird entity that is defined almost entirely by uh by its love of outrage porn indeed that uh there's a there's a deprecatory term within the community that probably can't say on the radio that that they call the they call the moral fags it's one of, I think one of the most interesting uh, slurs of our time, but um, yeah, that there's there's this one part that's that's kind of about free speech and and uh, just having a community and uh, being cool and posting posting stuff, uh, and there's yeah there's this other part that's about doing a holy war. E- yeah, there's you could you could see that as sort of a what is it conquest is it conquest second law. That all all organizations that aren't explicitly rightist will be taken over by left wingers. <laughs> That's that would be the right wing explanation of what happened. Uh, I don't know. I think uh, it's it's an interesting case study and in the the move from 4chan to 8chan because because 8chan decided not to uh, because of the Gamergate thing. That's another interesting egregore of our time. That was kind of the the origin of thinking about these things in particular uh, over the past year. Um, what was Gamergate? Gamergate is a big controversy where uh, it started out sort of like the assassination of the Archduke with a sort of silly little incident uh, with a, a game developer who had apparently used improperly used connections and slept with game journalists in exchange for, uh, for positive coverage of a game. And it started a, a huge battle on the internet that's still going on. I think it's, it's been like almost a year. It's, yeah, it's, it's, um, that uh, the gamers on the one side um, wanting to play their video games and the sort of journalists on the other side wanting to criticize the games and say that they should X, Y, and Z. Um, so, yeah, that was an interesting battle that no one, I, I don't think anyone at the time thought that it would still be going on 10 months later, however long it's been. When people have these, when people agree on all these, on all these things, or when people belong to, or find themselves in a position where they are signalling to an egregore, which which they do compulsively, it's yes. not something that you just it's fun. you don't deliberately. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> it's a coordination mechanism, absolutely. right? It's absolutely a coordination mechanism. Yeah, for cooper- to promote cooperation and and uh, connect us together, just like the internet. We touched on the cypherpunks before. Mm-hmm. Um, with cryptography and uh, and free speech mm-hmm. and information technology, cryptography almost seems like the height of sacredness. Mm-hmm. Take the cypherpunks mm-hmm. and their development of, say, remailing technologies that were eventually picked up by the Navy to make Tor. 
While they were developing uh, those remailers, was that itself an act of signaling to an egregore? The, the values that are present in the community that they're signaling toward uh, are exactly what created the tools. What they were used for later may be exactly what they were about when they created them. But I think, for instance, people work on open source in part because they care about it, not because they're getting paid for it or even because they think they might in the future, but it's in part sort of a labor of, of love and cooperation. And uh, so, so those things are absolutely products of an egregore. How did this... Um... How do they, as a group, coordinate and create this this technology, and how is that propagated um, down through the years? I mean, is this something you can, well, uh, you can extrapolate norms. on? Well, I think they have They they have uh, um, they they don't necessarily include politeness, but they they do have norms of of how you prove yourself, how you become, uh, how you kind of gain status and respect in the community, um, and definitely have values. Uh, that people can signal toward. I think it, it kind of goes beyond that. Uh, you could probably pick them out in a crowd. They kind of dress. They dress in a particular way. Often, uh, speech speech patterns and and vocabulary, uh, even even into the uh, kind of a dialect in which they they might code switch into things like famili familiarity with with uh, with the certain tools included that and that would go into the humor of the of the culture. Uh, that the jokes have to do are, are often in jokes that have to do with the that require understanding. So it's almost a, it's almost shibboleths kind of things that that show that you're part of the the in group, and they kind of protect themselves from from uh, intruders in that way from from hostile intruders. Um, I think to some degree, kind of being uncool protects you from being taken over by intruders. Uh, I think that's how mathematics has protected itself from being taken over. Uh, and it's it's somewhat similar with the with the cypherpunks. Um, if you're too cool, you're in danger of being taken over by by lame people. Uh, but if you if you protect yourself with with culture and and rituals and shibboleths and and language, uh, then you can maybe remain remain independent, remain free, and and uh, not be taken over. And when you say taken over, I mean, how does that affect how does that affect this meta entity? That I, well, it might be it might be replaced with a new one. Uh, it might be that it, when there's a sacredness battle going on, it's often a battle of egregoric entities where one existed in the first place and maybe it was weak and it got taken over by a more powerful one. Uh, so the the battle in the, the Science Fiction Writers Association, the, the sort of science fiction egregore was kind of weak and, and ended up being taken over by a what you might call a social justice egregore that that uh, was more powerful and, and, uh, and scooped everybody up. <laughs> This is anonymous and 4chan all over, or, you know, the, before the fact, isn't it? Absolutely. To bring this to Bitcoin, because that's what we're both thinking about, <laughs> I presume, is, sure. I mean, Bitcoin is the mother of all of these, of all of these things. And we're kind of living now, I feel anyway, in a post-Bitcoin world. Absolutely. Um, I wonder how you feel that's changed our view of, um, of the internet in general and what we've learned from Bitcoin and, um, and what we can expect from these um, online communities and these uh, these egregoric entities in the future in a post-Bitcoin world. One thing is money, historically, money is a plausibility structure for a government egregore. So money is what part of what makes governments so powerful as big entities. Bitcoin takes all that away. Uh, Bitcoin requires, you know, it's, it's trustless, famously. Uh, there's no central entity 
uh, at all that you're coordinating with that you have to sort of signal toward or that has control over the money. So it puts all of the cooperation that there's going to be is between the parties rather than trusting the big giant uh, government entity to do what's best for you, which of course they have incentive not to do. Uh, you trust the whatever party you're, you're sending stuff to uh, and you trust uh, um, the, the protocols, which, which doesn't mean trusting any entity in particular. Now you say that, but I wonder about, um, what about Satoshi's million? Right, because in a sense, when you do trust the protocols, where, mm -hmm. where you, you trust the um, you trust the open source community to mm -hmm. examine and, um, and, and and verify that the protocols are secure and everything. Uh, and embarrassingly, there's sort of an unintended fork going on right and right now as we speak. So, <laughs> how do you mean? Oh, the uh, um, the thing that's going. I think it was just today that's going on with some of the miners uh, trying to take a small advantage. Uh, not um, uh, skipping over certain blocks, I believe, so that a, a fork has has just happened. Um, not sure how that's going to resolve. So it's kind of kind of embarrassing for pro bitcoiners today. Uh, yeah, I don't know how it's going to resolve. So is that like a selfish mining, um, a selfish mining thing, or a? Um... Yeah, yeah. And mining is supposed to be the incentives are supposed to be totally coordinated with the system incentives, but this is a situation that's going just emerging right now that maybe the the incentives are are slightly off. Cool. I'm gonna actually have to have a look at that. I'm supposed to be all clued up on these things. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I just read about it today. So yeah. So you've got um like Satoshi. We were talking about these um these sacred figures, and Satoshi Nakamoto is definitely the mother of all. He's definitely a saint. Yes. He's our he's Saint Saint Satoshi. <laughs> you've got these million bitcoins that he mined that have never been moved. Mm -hmm. And I think yep. of that as kind of a uh, this idea of a reputation burn. He dis he destroyed a, a million bitcoins, and so we can mm -hmm. trust him. Yes, that's a great insight. Yeah, that's a great insight. Now that we have, it seems is this with us to stay? I mean, what is the story of Bitcoin? Does it end? Does it end in a gradual decline, or or is there is there more to this than uh, than we've seen? Big question mark. Uh, I think it has, just like with anything, it has the the potential to uh, to kind of eat all of the money. The money systems have become really strong. Uh, it has the potential to to fade out. Um, some people some people say uh, it's it's the blockchain that really is the is the core, and it's not Bitcoin so much. I'm not sure how much how much i buy that because it's an interesting yeah. technology but it's so so cumbersome and it abandons all of the belief power that uh by virtue of the fact that i believe a bitcoin has value i prove that it has value i mean that's you have this recursion yes and that and it's kind of it's uncomfortable to to have it shoved in your face that that's how all money works that all money only has value because people treat it as having value and whether it's backed by gold or not, the just recurs recurses to the gold itself that it, that only has value because of this sort of group illusion. Yes, Bitcoin, and this is and so this um, <laughs> and so essentially these are all of these things we're talking about when when we talk uh, when we take it from the cypherpunks to four chan, and then all the way along the spectrum all the way forward to um, to Bitcoin. We see these we see <laughs> common. I guess common egregores like creating this chain of uh, or connecting this chain of of influence. 
yeah, whatever whatever's causing people to do the ritual behaviors that that create the technology. And is and those uh, what's causing those ritual behaviors? If we were to distill it down to um, to some really core. Well, to some core factors that influence all of these these egregores, what do you think they might be? Some of it's money, but I think underneath that is the motivation for social status and uh, what the, the promise uh, that egregores make, that groups make, is that you'll be a high status, belonging, loved member of this group. And I think that's that's often even more of a motivator than money. That that's that's even maybe what's behind people's desire for money. Uh, that as a social species in nature we're totally screwed if we're if we're ejected from our group and ostracized and we're really doing well if we're if we have high status and uh and are are accepted and belong in our group so i think that's kind of the the core human motivation for everything so is this a new society that we're seeing emerge on the internet i mean are, are all these things converging to produce a new uh a new society with its own culture and its own yeah i mean and i understand that there are obviously many different cultures in all societies but is, are we seeing something like this emerge in the same way we might see a nation or, uh, or, a, um, or a people? I think it's missing a lot. And maybe these can be solved technologically, but they're not currently. I think it's missing being able to dance and, and smell each other and eat together and uh, do kind of the fun rituals that, that you can only do when you're together physically. Uh, that people, We dream of being able to solve those problems with, with virtual reality and technologically, but... Uh, the 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 bandwidth demands would be pretty serious for that, uh, so I think it'll it'll be missing something if that is the final form. Uh, but it has certainly has properties and possibilities that that we don't have from geographic communities. What about those who oppose internet communities or find them offensive uh, just by their very existence? Yeah. <laughs> Automatically, we talked about the this kind of hyper rationality, or you know, supposed hyper rationality of that um, of the individuals self select as uh, as say cypherpunks or, or or what have you, and how they tend to not understand hackers, and how they tend to not understand sacredness or be sacredness blind, mm -hmm. and because um, yeah. we know or actively try to mess with people on their on their so that's trolling. I think of as basically intentionally screwing with other people's sacredness yeah that it's extremely yeah. bizarre behavior and just the the <laughs> atheist obsession you know this obsession with yeah. which is yeah which shows a kind of a, a really fundamental ignorance about the the human condition and just about how the world is in general um yeah i think so and um so we have this uh this we have this kind of battleground and i wonder what egregores outside of the internet find themselves actively uh, actively in combat with these groups? Uh, anyone who wants to kind of impose their particular vision of sacredness on people are going to be interested in internet communities in general um, and specific ones that, that disagree with them or don't don't give the popular the, the proper signals of, of loyalty and uh, and submission. I suppose the uh, the the MPAA and the RIAA are. Um, I'm not sure if they'd be. So, do, do you think there could be an? Do you think egregores uh, exist above the uh, above the corporate level? Uh, above the corporate level, I think corporations can be egregoric entities. Um, above the corporate level, I'm not sure what you mean. Like, do you think that corporations oh, themselves like, like, uh, signal to? Yeah. Oh, I see what you mean. Um, you know, definitely. Yeah. Uh, in the whole industries might might be that um on the the coordinated industry level corporations absolutely signal 
Um, yeah, I was talking about all the all the rainbow flags after the the Supreme Court same sex marriage decision came down. But yeah, more than just that, that uh, advertising is is hugely composed of sacredness signaling. Um, you can almost figure out what your culture holds sacred by watching advertisements and looking at uh, looking at what what corporations want to associate themselves with. This is an occult term, right? The egregore is an occult term. Yeah, yeah. From uh, 19th century French occultists, and then was kind of adopted by modern occultists in the 80s and in the 1980s. So, yeah. 19th century French. Yeah. Uh, huh. Victor Hugo, weirdly, was the first first recorded user of it. There's a guy named, I think his name's Eliphas Lévy, who uh, he, had, he had a really great uh, term for it in, I think it was 1859. Let me, I have it on my... Um, they are the ter- terrible, terrible beings that crush us without pity because they're unaware of our existence that Eliphas Levy writes in 1868. For more, check out ribbonfarm.com. This episode featured content from Sarah Perry, music by Mark Emilian, and was produced by myself and Adam B. Levine. Today's magic word is ribbon. R-I-B-B-O-N.